we'll go ahead and get started then. You should have your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 12. Uh, if you got your notes tonight and you haven't opened them up, you will see that they look a little differently. I have added the scripture verses themselves to the notes uh, to try and make it a little easier, be a little bit more helpful uh, for you to know where we are and, and what each note is referring to. If you find this to be helpful, let me know. And I'll continue to do so. And if you are not receiving the notes for the Bible study, you can uh, send me a text or email me your, uh, your email, and I will be happy to send them to you at the uh, conclusion of the class. My email is bishopaldridge at gmail.com. All right, so last week uh, in chapter 11 we uh, saw that the majority of the uh, chapter focused on the ministry of two witnesses, two modern-day prophets that are sent uh, specifically to Jerusalem, although they may in fact minister all over the world, we don't know, but they will certainly, at least they will die, they will be killed in Jerusalem. And after they are killed... Uh, they will be uh, taken up into heaven, and uh, there will be this uh, uh, very uh, significant event that will, that will happen there, and then the seventh angel will sound. So we're still, we're still talking about the trumpets. We're still talking about that second sacramental ritual that John is describing. We're in the portion uh, that we're calling the parenthetical visions because um, they're not directly related to any specific trumpet or any specific uh, uh, event in heaven. They're more like uh, sort of the background information, the, the stuff that's been happening that uh, John has not had a, a chance to share yet. So we're, we're still at that midpoint uh, that seventh trumpet, when the the angel said there in chapter 10 that once the seventh trumpet sounds, there will be no more delay, and that the uh, mystery of God would be fished, and the, the final, whatever you want to call them, the days of wrath, the days of the Lord, the, the time of the end, everything will be completed at the sound, after the sounding of the seventh trumpet. So we saw that in chapter 11. And then as we move into chapter 12, remember at the close of chapter 11, a very mysterious thing John sees. He doesn't, even, he doesn't give us any more information other than uh, the temple in heaven is opened and the Ark of the Covenant is seen. You know, and the Ark of the Covenant has not been seen since the days of you know the Babylonian captivity, since before that, actually, you know the days of Jeremiah, the the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, despite uh, you Indiana Jones fans out there, uh, no one knows exactly where it is or or what happened to it. But here, John sees it uh, in the temple of God in heaven, and then we move into chapter twelve. And John describes a series of signs that he sees um, in heaven or in the heavens. Uh, and so we're going to talk about those signs that he sees. We're going to talk about what they mean and what they add to uh, the visions that we have seen thus far. All right, so chapter 12 begins with a great sign appearing in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Now, this is a, a, a I guess you could say, 
In some ways, this may be a continuation of the, the parenthetical vision that began in chapter 10. This could be a new uh, separate vision, but we're going to treat it as part of the continuation. And we're going to look at the identity of this woman. Uh, the two most common interpretations of who the woman is, uh, depending on which side of the... Remember all those schemes of interpretation we've been talking about? The post-millennial, amillennial, pre-millennial, preterist, futurist, all that stuff. So uh, a lot of how you... A lot of how you or a lot of what scheme you subscribe to will influence the way that you see this woman. Um, some see this woman as the church, eternal, the church eternal, the universal church. That tends to be the view of your, your amillennial uh, idealist uh, groupings. But those who uh, kind of subscribe more to the dispensational, premillennial type interpretations generally regard this woman to be Israel. Uh, I'm going to take the approach tonight that Israel is the more likely candidate, uh, not because of any scheme of interpretation, but because of how prominent she has been so far in uh, John's visions. Remember, going back to chapter 7, uh, seeing the 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes. Again, chapter 11, seeing the ministries of the two witnesses. It really, it really does seem that at least at this point in John's uh, visions, Israel has really come into primary focus and has really become the center of his attention, or at least of the attention of the ones who are giving him divisions. So this chapter would then, if we, if we take it to be Israel, this chapter would give us some background on the cause of the conflict that will be described between this woman and the beast in later chapters. So... The closest scriptural comparison to this vision is probably the dream of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. If you remember the story of Joseph there, he has these dreams of, uh, of, of how prominent you know, he is going to be in the salvation of his family and ultimately the salvation of his nation. And one of those dreams, he sees the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowing down to, to him. So that, uh, in that, at least in that dream in Genesis 37, it's very clear that the sun and the moon and stars are references to, to Israel. And, and so we, that's about the only other place in Scripture where we, uh, we see this particular type of vision. Uh, of course, we know that the Old Testament makes a number of prophecies, including Isaiah chapter 60, where Israel will be the light of the world. And uh, if we interpreted chapter 11 correctly, uh, as Israel is converted to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, she will serve as the primary witness to the world during this tribulation period. And of course, the sun there, the clothing of the sun, uh, is is certainly can be understood to be a reference to the great light, the great glory that uh, of God that will shine through His people uh, as the rest of the world goes dark. Uh, we see that light and darkness play significant roles in the Book of Revelation. Uh, the, the sun, moon, and stars as signs are, are, are somewhat common in scriptures. Astronomical uh, bodies, astronomical signs are mentioned quite often 
in the scriptures in association with uh, significant events. I think most of you, probably uh, uh, the one that most of us would think of off the top of our heads is the star of Bethlehem and the wise men uh, following it to find uh, the baby Christ. And, of course, there's many other examples throughout the Bible of God uh, arranging the heavens in a certain order to reveal certain things or teach certain things or give significance to certain events. All right, so in verse 2, we learn that uh, this woman is with child and is in labor and in pain to give birth. Of course, uh, we know that you know, Israel was chosen very early, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, the seed of David, the, the seed promises that were fulfilled to produce the Savior, the Messiah, through the line of Israel and uh, specifically through the line of David has always been a, a cause or a reason for, some of, for many of her, her troubles and the attacks that have been uh, carried out against her over the years. The, the enemies, you know, plotting and planning and trying to prevent these things from ever coming to pass uh, you know, are well documented throughout uh, not only the Old Testament, but throughout world history as, uh, as Israel was, you know, seemingly on the verge of being destroyed in any number of, of events. So this, this promised seed that she is pregnant with uh, historically is, seems to be what verse 2 is making a reference to. All right, so then another sign appears. We're in verse 3 now. And this is a sign of a great fiery red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and uh, seven crowns or diadems on his head. That the dragon is Satan. Because we are told directly in verse 9... Uh, and the dragon symbol is, uh, you know, symbolic of his attempts to cause chaos and destruction. And we know that there's a very similar vision and a very similar description given in Daniel chapter 7. And we also know that there's a, an additional information in Revelation 17 as how this dragon relates to Mystery Babylon. Indeed, in chapter 17, the seven heads are identified as seven mountains, and the seven diadems are identified as seven kings. And the ten horns are identified as ten kings who will support the last king of Mystery Babylon. So we're going to talk a lot more about that in chapter 17. So we're not going to take much time, at least with that portion of this vision here in chapter 12. We are going to focus more on Satan himself and, and the realization that the kingdom of the beast, whatever it appears to be outwardly, will be wholly surrendered to Satan. It will be his, you know, his great attempt to take control of this world. Any comments on verse 3? Now, now in in verse three, could this could this be making reference to uh, to Rome, or are they are they are they Catholic Church? Um, Papal well, well, Rome. Well, there, there is, um, and you know, we probably would need to go to chapter seventeen to really dig into mystery Babylon. But yes, the seven mountains, the seven mountains, um, you know, the most famous city in history that was built on seven mountains or seven hills was the city, or is the city, I should say, of Rome. And a lot of commentators over the years have made that connection. And certainly if you think about the time that John was uh, alive, that, that, that John was... Uh, 
ministering. Uh, you know, he mentioned a city built on seven hills uh, or seven mountains. You know, anyone who was reading that at his time would have almost certainly understood that to be Rome. Now, as whether it connects to the uh, to the papal power, whether it connects to the Catholic Church, whether it connects to anything like that, uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to ask you to wait until we get to chapter 17, only so we don't get sidetracked and not finish be able to finish chapter 12 tonight, because that's that's going to be a lot a, a lot of involved uh, conversation and teaching there. So. But uh, the connection to Rome is is pretty evident, at least at least the Rome of John's day. All right, chapter or uh, verse four says his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child, as soon as it was born. All right, so who are these stars of heaven? Uh, There are places in the scriptures where angels are referred to as stars. Um, uh, Certainly, stars are understood in prophecy to be symbolic of heavenly power or heavenly authority. So, I think there's a fair number of commentators who would understand this to be uh, the heavenly authorities that have supported Satan's rebellion against God. This is sort of uh, giving us an idea. And if we, if we do the math on this, I don't know. The Bible says that the, the number of the heavenly host is innumerable, um, or at least to us it would be innumerable, you know, like the stars of heaven, like the sands of the sea are common uh, ways of describing. But if you can just imagine, you know, if we use the math and we take the math in a literal sense, it's just hard for me to get my mind around the idea that one-third of the, the heavenly authorities, the heavenly host, were deceived by... Lucifer by Satan and actually joined him in his rebellion uh, against God, and you know, that's a, that's a that's just a massive idea, and that's really where we're going to focus most of our attention tonight is this this war that takes place in heaven and and, and everything that it is uh, the way it has affected our life here on Earth, the way it has affected the fate of our universe is, is just uh, incredible to really let your mind contemplate. And we're given the idea, at least we're given the idea here, and we'll read about it you know, a little bit further down, that the cause or one of the causes or you know, one of the reasons for this battle, for this war, was this promise of a child, of a seed, of a of one who would come to rule uh, the kingdom of God. And so we, we know at least, uh, you know, how many times do you want to count, whether it's, uh, it's Moses uh, in the bulrush, Ark of Bulrushes, whether it's uh, uh, the slavery in Egypt, whether it's the captivity in Babylon, whether it's Herod uh, ordering the death of every uh, child in, in Bethlehem. How many times did Satan try to uh, to defeat or to destroy the child of promise, but you know, thank God, praise God, every single time he failed to do so. God's providential power uh, kept the promise alive and until the child was born. But didn't 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 uh, Haman try to kill all the Jews also? Haman, yes, another great example. The uh, the plot to uh, exterminate Israel, and we we know that in the natural sense, you know, there's always these. You know, we've we've had these uh, uh, you know battles and wars and conflicts between nations, but 
when you see the, you know, the singling out specifically of the Jewish people, even when they're not a political unit, you know, like they were in the days of Haman and Esther, um, you know that the devil and the Satan is, is behind that. In, uh, in verse 5, we see that the child is born. With that reference there to Psalm 2, the one to rule all the nations of the rod of iron. Um, we, there's, there's no question here, at least in my mind, that this child is Jesus Christ. I think he is the absolute fulfillment of that promise. And uh, we know that he destroyed Satan's power, specifically his power over death, at the time of his own resurrection. And he himself was caught up at his ascension into heaven. So I think we've got a pretty good picture here, at least through verses 1 through 5, that you, you know, John is placing the context of this conflict in the whole picture of, of the fall of man, the promise to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, the singling out of Abraham, the, the promise through Isaac, through Jacob, all the way down, Joseph delivering. You know, I think there's another opportunity there. If Joseph is not thrown in the pit, if he's not sold into slavery, uh, you know, the nation of Israel maybe dies, you know, in, in the famine if Joseph's not there to deliver them. Another evidence of the care of God to protect this one particular bloodline uh, so that it will produce the heir of the kingdom of God. And so John sees the whole scope. The, the, the child is finally born, fulfills his ministry on earth, is caught up into heaven. And then um, the enemy begins to turn his attention uh, again to try to uh, prevent the rest of the prophecies and the rest of the things from being fulfilled. All right, so verse 6, she bore a male child, or excuse me, then the woman fled into the wilderness. We've seen this number before. There is that familiar number to us now, 1,260 Days, which of course equals 42 months, which of course equals three and a half years. So again, we see the connection to chapter 11. So we have a three and a half year period in which the witnesses are ministry. During this period, a number of Jews, if not the whole nation, are converted. The midpoint comes, the, uh, the two witnesses are killed. And that's followed by a period of three and a half years, or 1,262 days, in which the beast takes out his wrath, and Satan takes out his wrath uh, against those who have defied his power. Um, it's not made clear here uh, if it's you know, the entire nation or only the 144,000 who are delivered at this point, but we do know from some Old Testament prophecies that uh, there will be a, a, a great war. We talk about war in heaven, but there will be a great war on earth in Israel, in Jerusalem, in, in, in this period of time. So certainly not a time, <laughs> not a time to, uh, to be in Israel when all of this is going on. So now we come to verse 7, and of course the, really the centerpiece of this whole story. And that is the war that broke out in heaven. And we see the mention of Michael and his angels and their fight with the dragon and his angels. Now there are a number of interpretations of when this war uh, actually takes place or when it took place, if you believe this is in the past. Uh, if you've if you've ever read a Schofield Bible or a uh, uh, or subscribe to the, some of the theories of some of the people that are called gap theorists, um, 
probably for, you know for my generation it'd probably be a guy like Donald uh, Barnhorse or uh, someone like that. Is it, uh, there's this there's an idea that's been promoted that believes that this war in heaven took place during or in between Genesis chapter one verse one and Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. In other words, they believe that there was an original creation. That creation was destroyed or became uh, formless and void through this cosmic conflict and then had to be recreated or restored. And that's what the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible describe. That's one theory. Another theory sees this war as having basically been going on from the moment of creation and continuing on all the way through all of the, the spans of time. That's sort of the amillennial or the, the idealist perspective. Uh, you know, most of your dispensationalists will probably tell you that this war happens, or at least the, the ultimate battle of this war happens very specifically right here at the midpoint of the tribulation period. Now, I'm going to try very hard here not to take a side, but I, I think the most reasonable interpretation is that the, the rebellion began which we could probably describe, you know, I don't know how many of you know American history that well, but you had the, we had a civil war in America, which seems kind of relevant at this time as it almost feels like we're heading for another one. But, you know, there was, there was uh, a period of time where, uh, you know, the, the sides were kind of choosing up, and then there was the initial shot, the initial battle, Think Fort Sumter in South Carolina. That was uh, that took place, and then there's you know several years, three or four years, five years of warfare, and then there was kind of the concluding battle. So most wars are not fought with one single battle. Uh, wars take place over a series of battles. These you know different areas of conflict, different areas of uh, uh, at different times. So I think it's fair to say that certainly uh, we know at least from the time of the Garden of Eden that the devil or Satan has been active in our world. So it's, it's reasonable to say that the war began at least prior to that time and that it did and is an ongoing fight. It's an ongoing battle. Remember the story in Daniel Chapter 10, uh, the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece, Michael has to come to help the heavenly messenger get through so that Daniel can receive the, uh, the answer to his prayer. So we see that. We see a number of references in the New Testament to conflict in the heavens, uh, to Satan falling like lightning from heaven, to uh, the overthrow, the pulling down of strongholds, the you know all, all of the verses. You spiritual warfare people out there, you know, you know these these stories very well. So I think it's very clear that this battle is an ongoing battle, at least as far as uh, uh, Satan is is not is still active. He's still working. He's still opposing the rule of God. He's still trying to prevent the things that God is doing in the world from coming to pass. I think that all of that is still the reality that we are living in today. So I think that is the right way to understand the series of battles that constitutes this war. But I do want to make sure we all understand that the victory is assured. The victory has already been uh, uh, taken of Christ on the cross, once and for all, uh, you know, uh, defeated and, and broke the power of, of Satan. And even though, you know, 
even though there's still these ongoing battles that we're dealing with, um, there's no risk, at least cosmically or globally or universally, there's no risk of losing this battle. Now, of course, any one of us individually can become a casualty of this war if we lose our faith in God. But uh, ultimately, it is shown here in verse 8 that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the power of the kingdom of Christ. And so we know that once we get to this point in the story that uh, Satan has failed in his attempt to overthrow heaven, not only has he failed, but he and all those who supported him are now uh, cast out of heaven. They are no longer have access to uh, the heavenly realm. This is good news for heaven. It's not great news for earth, but it, it's good news for, for heaven as the accuser of our brethren is cast down. So we look at this battle, what, what caused it, what, um, what is the heart of it, and really, the best guess that I can give is just from the information that the Scriptures share with us is that it is or at least partially triggered. We talk, you know, we know about the sin of pride and Satan's desire to be worshipped, to be to be held in, uh, you know, above the mount of the congregation. All of those things about Satan. But a lot of it seems to focus on the identity of this child. This idea that while Satan may have, you know, been somewhat willing to submit to God for a period of time, however long that might have been, he is certainly not willing to submit to Jesus Christ. And that is, seems to be, that revelation, we know that plan from eternity past, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. We know that, uh, that this idea that uh, one of these human creatures would be, would be uh, uh, or that, that God himself would be incarnated, would become one of these human beings that Satan seems to hold in such low estate uh, and low esteem that uh, he would be forced to bow and to kneel and to submit and to surrender to the man Jesus Christ uh, certainly was not something he was interested or willing to do and seems to be one of the primary causes of this conflict. Of course, we know from some Old Testament scriptures that seem to refer to uh, the things that happened to him that, of course, his own pride and his own personal ambition is a big part of that. You can go back and read uh, Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28, and you can see that um, prophetic picture of how the pride of Lucifer, how thou art fallen from heaven, O son of the morning star. That, you know, that, that idea is... Uh, echoed in uh, the reference to the Garden of Eden. In, in the Garden of Eden, in Ezekiel 28, he's called the cherub that covered, the, the one who walked uh, you know, before the throne of God. We don't know a great deal. Honestly, most of what we know about Satan is, is really just a lot of guesswork. But the, the, I guess the, the basic idea of him being once being one of the angels, perhaps even one of the throne angels, one of the highest order, one of the the archangels, and and then falling. You know, I I don't, I'm not asking anybody to feel sorry for him. I'm not asking anybody to pity him. But my goodness, if to, to have to have a, if that's the case, to have been at that height of perfection and beauty uh, and power and rank and authority to see where he's ended up and to see where he ends up, it is, if this doesn't teach us humility, I, I can't, I don't know. 
I don't know what could. I don't know what would. Um, but uh, his, his attempt to overthrow heaven is an absolute failure. And he's no longer even allowed to operate. We know we have that picture in Job. We have that picture in Job where he comes along with the sons of God to come before the throne of God, to give report, to talk about uh, uh, you know what he has seen in the world. You know he's he's mentioned in the New Testament and several times as the Prince of the world, the God of this world, lowercase G. So you know he seems to have been uh, at least, if nothing else, he seems to have been a creature of very high rank and authority and uh, and great power and glory. But it wasn't enough for him. It wasn't enough. He wasn't satisfied. He wanted to be worshipped as God. And by the way, still does. He has not changed. If this isn't the, you know, I may be preaching a little bit tonight. I, you know, I try not to, but... You know, I was talking Sunday and our, our, our Sunday about pride and humility and, and how it's so easy uh, to confuse the two. If he is not the, uh, the strongest warning that can be given against the danger of pride, and, if it, and maybe his fall and everything that resulted from his fall, the corruption of man, the destruction of the world. Just think about everything that flowed from that moment when Satan decided, when Lucifer decided, I want to be worshipped. Think of everything that's happened in the universe since that moment. All of the death and destruction. You know, God calls him the original murderer, the original sinner, the original liar, the original thief comes to kill and steal and destroy all that we see around us. And it doesn't mean we're, we don't have free will. It doesn't mean we're not responsible for our, only cho- our own choices. We are. But all that we see around us, all of the destruction we see around us, comes from this well. And it all started with that pride. I will not bow. I will not kneel. I deserve the worship more so than... This child, this, this, this monstrosity, this abomination in his own mind of God as a man. And, uh, boy, I tell you, there's some people today and, you know, all over our world today that need to take a second look. And, uh, and uh, their, their pride is getting the best of them. And, and they're headed for the same destruction and the same fall that, uh, that Satan has, has experienced. Um, okay, any comments or questions here? I know I went on a little bit of a sermon there, but uh, has anybody got anything here? You know, you, you, you alluded to something, and I just want to go back to Genesis, the first chapter, for a minute. Um, oftentimes, I've often wondered why the scripture, God gave Adam and Eve the, the authority to be fruitful and multiply and replenish. I've often wondered why the word replenish? Because to me, that signifies that something was there before. Is, is there any thoughts that you have that you could share on that? Um, yes. I, you know, that, that you, you, depending on the translation uh, that you are reading from. So uh, let me go, let me, let me grab my... Uh, this is a great thing about doing this from my office in the church. I can just grab my concordance real quick, my Strong's. <laughs> I, can, I can look up the word and, and, and tell you exactly what, you know, because different translations will, will uh, translate the word differently. You're using the word replenish, which is the old King James uh, version, which is a legitimate translation. Uh, but let me look here. The actual word... Is uh, has has a very wide uh, a wide application. It's it can mean to fill, 
to be full, to be complete, to fulfill, to finish, to satisfy, uh, are some of the, the ways of interpreting that word. So let's say that you have a, this is where we talked earlier about schemes of interpretation. Let's say that you have um, a position that you're holding, that let's say you believe that there was uh, a creation that was a, before, that was destroyed, and then the creation account in Genesis is kind of the second creation, or the recreation, the replenishing, the, the, the fixing of, of what got broken. Um, you can read that here. It's a, that's a legitimate interpretation of how to see that. But it's not the only one. And that's why I, want to, I always try in these classes teaching the Bible, I always try to be fair. Whenever the Bible is very, very specific, and this is the only way you can understand it, I stand on it. But when the Bible uses a word that has different applications in different contexts, I also want to make that clear. Because I think we spend too, too much time arguing with people that... Um, you know, share our belief in God, our love for Christ, our fullness of the Spirit, but we argue over things that aren't significant in terms of salvation. They're just, they're really just different ways of seeing it. So here's the way I would see it from a different perspective, from a different perspective. God, only one creation, Adam and Eve were the originals. Um, the earth was created all of you know everything existed, but there had only been order and design brought to one part of the earth, the Garden of Eden. Everything outside the garden still remained to be, uh, you know, brought in. In other words, the mission of Adam and Eve was to make the rest of the world, the rest of the earth, like the Garden of Eden. That would be another way to read that word. They were to finish or complete. You know, God is inviting them in to be his partners in creation, to, to finish the work that he had begun. He gives them the temple. He shows them what the amazing potential of the earth is, and then he sends them out to go ahead and bring that uh, to pass throughout the rest of his creation. So, both perspectives and both interpretations can be supported from that verse. So it really just kind of depends on some other parts of the Bible that we're not talking about tonight. But, you know, for me, I really do, uh, I really do like, at least, I, I don't know, if, maybe, maybe it's pride. Ooh, I hate to think that. But, but I, do, I do like the idea of being invited by God to be his partner in, in creation, to be his partner in bringing, you know, that, you know, one of my theme verses, we all have them, but to me, as it is in heaven, so should it be on earth, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, to me, God shows us the way things are supposed to be. He gives us the power. He gives us the picture. He gives us the, the potential but then he releases us to go and actually fulfill it. So both, both ways of looking at it can be supported scripturally. So you're just going to have to kind of figure which way you know, feels uh, uh, most in agreement or in alignment with the way that you see the rest of scripture. I know that was a very long-winded answer. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I tend to get off on these tangents and lose, no, uh, right. lose right. the I'm sense of time. Okay. All right. Has anybody else got a thought here? I don't you know, I, I know my voice is the one you, you hear all the oh, time. Bishop? I'm sure somebody else here. Yes. Bishop, I have a question. I just want to make sure I'm clear in regards um when you mentioned that Satan um was thrown out of heaven and he has no longer access to the heavenly. Um that incident with Job when he went before the Lord um, you know, more or less accuse Job. How do we relate that to his access um, to the heaven? Well, we would we would say that he at that time had not yet been thrown out. So, remember, in any warfare, 
So think of, you know, whether you're talking about, I know we just, didn't we just do July 4th this weekend? So <laughs> everyone thinks of July, everything, boy, I, I, I'm losing track of time these days. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the coronavirus. I don't know. I just can't believe we're halfway through July already. Um, everybody, you know, the, the mindset you have, uh, I guess, when you first hear, either as a child or you come to this country, Independence Day, right? Independence Day. Your, your mindset is okay on July 3rd at, at, at 11.59.59, America was still a colony of Great Britain. And July 4th at 12.00.00, America was a free nation, right? Isn't, isn't that the way we kind of envision it, that our independence happened in, in one hour, in one moment? But then you, you study it and you realize we declared independence on July 4th, 1776. Does anybody know when the war for independence actually ended? Wow. All right, I'm sending you all back to school. <laughs> the, 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 the Battle of Yorktown was in 18, or 1781. The first Continental Congress was until 1783. In other words... We wrote a document, they signed a document that said we are suing for independence here. We're, we're going to war for independence. But that independence was not actually achieved that day. There was a series of battles, George Washington crossing the Delaware, you know, you know all, all, all the stories. There was a series of battles over a period of years before America actually uh, won the right of self-government. So when we say that, you know, Jesus won the victory on the cross, you know, that, that's our Independence Day as Christians, right? That's, that's the day we point to and say, yep, that's the moment. That's the moment where we became free in Christ. And we also understand that this battles, this war is ongoing. And it's continuing to this very hour. And Satan, uh, at this time, is still um, uh, able to, to, to work in the heavenly realm. He's still able to, you know, we're going to read here in just, I think it's the very next verse. Let's go, ahead, let's go down one more verse, and I think this will give us some light on what we're talking about. The very next verse talks about the accuser of our brethren, has been cast down. So let's think about through for a moment. You know, the literal, the literal meaning of the word Satan or devil is accuser or adversary. Uh, when, remember when Jesus told Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. He was saying, get thee behind me, adversary, right? You're, you're, you're acting like my adversary. You're acting like Satan. Um, the, the, the best understanding that I have currently of Satan's, right, so what is this, July 8th, 2020. So the, the best understanding that I have that of Satan's current role in, let's, call, let's just call it the government of God, for lack of a better term, you know, is he is the accuser. So his... his uh, self-chosen or God-appointed role or whatever is to, is to bring charges against those who have disobeyed the laws of God. He is, uh, I don't know, who does that now? District attorney. Okay, so he's, he's sort of the heavenly district attorney. Of course, we know he's corrupt. We know he's a rebel leader. We know all of that. But um, because... Because there is still sin in the world, because there's still sin in the life of people, he still has, you know, even a liar can tell the truth once in a while. So Satan's power comes from sin. His power comes from the sin of the world, the sin of people. As long as he is able to point out to God the sins of people, he still kind of has a voice. But of course we understand that there's going to come a day, there's going to come a moment where the servants of God are going to be sealed, where the followers of the beast are going to take a mark, 
where there will be no more, uh, let me say this carefully, I don't want to give the wrong idea here. Um, basically, he who is righteous will be righteous still, he who is unrighteous will be unrighteous still. At that point, Satan will no longer have any right to accuse the righteous. He'll have no longer any right to be in heaven, in particular, in particular because of this rebellion that he has been fomenting and, and, and instigating against God's authority uh, in heaven and on earth. So it's fair to say that while he may currently have access, his access is somewhat limited right now and will soon be, be revoked completely. But in, in, the, in the present sense of the, of, of the idea, does Satan still, is Satan still able to enter into the heavenly realms? I believe he can. And I base that on some things that Paul writes in Ephesians and in Colossians and, um, and in some other places in the New Testament where it talks about these mites and thrones and dominions and powers and and this whole angelic, I think we covered some of this when we did Colossians recently, um, just this whole uh, spiritual uh, governmental structure that, um, you know, that allows, and, 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 and I think some of us would say, well, why, why doesn't God just get rid of Satan? What, what does he need him for? Uh, he doesn't really need him for anything, but God has, you know, appointed him to a, a task and a purpose, as he's appointed all his other creations, all his other angelic hosts, and he will judge them for how they fulfill their task and their purposes. And one day Satan and all of his angels are going to be cast into the lake of fire. But for now, um, for now, he is still active and able to accuse and to harass and to oppress God's people. I, did I get anywhere near where you were coming from there, sister? Yes. Yes, Bishop, you did. Thank you. Okay. I, you never know when I start one of my little rants. <laughs> one, one more point before you move on. In, um, when Jesus had sent the 70, 70 disciples out, and they came back, and they were saying to him that, you know, filled with joy because of all that happened, and Jesus' remark was, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Does that fit anywhere in this? Oh, I think it does. And you notice I put that scripture in your notes uh, okay. back on verse, uh, under number seven when it talks about the present conflict. If you go back and read that, he, he says immediately after that, he talks about giving them authority uh, to trample on serpents and scorpions and power over all of the, uh, of the enemy and, and all, you know, these... these uh, the, the, the main thing, I think, I'm going to say it's about verse 19 or verse 20, where he talks about specifically their authority over the demonic spirit. And, you know, if we did not have the ability uh, and the power and the authority through Christ to oppose demonic spirit, to pull down, to cast out, to bind... Thing. I mean, think in terms of, I, I know this is not specifically a class tonight on spiritual warfare, but all, think of all those spiritual warfare sermons and classes that you've, you've taught, I've taught, you've heard over the years. You know, this power through Christ, through Christ, let me be very specific, it's not intrinsic in us, through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, to, uh, to pull down or cast down or or, or bring Satan down in specific occasions. Let me be clear. I, I get myself in trouble sometimes. I'm not clear enough. Neither, none of us as an individual has the right to stop Satan from doing anything that God has authorized him to do. But in terms where it comes to the free will of human beings, the choice to obey Satan uh, or, or to obey God, the choice to support the demonic uh, agenda or support the, the, the Christ, uh, the gospel, the kingdom agenda, anywhere where there is uh, 
a point of conflict where someone can go either way, we have authority through Christ to, to strip Satan, to, to withstand him, to, to overthrow him, to, to cast him down, cast out, any, any way you want to phrase that, uh, to advance the, the agenda of the kingdom. And so when you talk about Luke chapter 10, I think that's the context that he is talking to. Now, some people believe that Jesus is referring to, remember what we talked about earlier, about the fall of Satan and, and, and uh, uh, when he was, uh, you know, he was Lucifer, he was the, 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 the beautiful throne angel, the, the cherub that covered, the, the guardian of the garden, whatever, whatever uh, you know, uh, description you want to give him there from any of those verses. When he fell from that, you know, when he fell from his position uh, before the throne of God, some people think that's what Jesus is talking about in that specific reference. Others believe he's speaking prophetically there. He's talking about the final fall or the, the ultimate fall that will, that will end Satan's work permanently. Um, so in any of those contexts, you are on pretty solid ground scripturally. Anyone else? Okay, so on that line, we are shown, we are told here in Revelation chapter 12, how Satan is ultimately defeated not only in heaven, but how he's defeated here on earth. And that's that famous verse, you've probably read it, memorized it, heard it preached, heard it taught, heard it quoted. They overcame him, how? By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. And they not, did not love their lives unto the death. So, uh, I, boy, I could just, I, I, we could have spent the whole, really, we could have spent our whole hour tonight talking about this one verse. Uh, this is everything. This is everything. Whatever you believe about the future, whatever, you, whatever scheme of interpretation, uh, this one verse has got to be common to us all. This has to be the foundation upon, upon which each one of us stands up against Satan. Satan will beat you and beat you to a pulp if you do not come, either do not resist him when he comes into you or do not come into him this way. The only advantages we have, the blood of the lamb, what is that? What is the blood of lamb? What does it symbolize? It's the forgiveness and cleansing of what? Our sins. Where does Satan get all of his power from in our life? He gets his power from our sin. As long as there is sin in your life, as long as there is unconfessed, unrepented of sin in your life, Satan will always have a voice and will always have power in your life. You have to come by the blood of the Lamb of God. You have to be cleansed. What do we? What, what did? What did the same? The same writer of Revelation wrote one of the most powerful words about this in his letter, his first letter, 1 John. You all, you all know the verse, right? If we confess our sins, what? He is faithful, faithful and just to do what? Forgive, Forgive us our us. sins and to do what? Cleanse us. Cleanse. Amen. That is the, you want to get Satan out of your life, you want to break his power, that's where it starts. It starts with the blood of the Lamb of God cleansing you, forgiving you, justifying you, being justified by His blood, right? The atonement, the hilasterion in the Greek, the, the atonement covering, that's the key. But, but it doesn't end there, right? What's the next step? Think, think Romans 10, 9 and 10. If we believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead and do what? Confess Him with our mouth. Confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. The, what is the word of our testimony? The word of our testimony. The earliest confession 
of the Christian church from the day of Pentecost on was a three simple words, right? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Think about what we're talking about in Revelation. What is this battle, what is this war all about? Who will reign? Who will be Lord? Who will be Lord in your life? Who will be Lord over all the universe? Who will be Lord of creation? Who will be King of kings, Lord of lords? This is what the whole battle is. And our confession, remember, at the time John was writing this, Christians were being led to public places of execution and were being told, directly told, that if they did not confess that Caesar was Lord, they would be killed. That was, you know, that was what the original persecution of the church by the Romans, we talked about Rome earlier, that's what it was. The, when the Christian stood up in public and said, Jesus is Lord, he was committing an act of treason against the Roman authority. And the only way not to be killed was to, was to confess that Caesar was Lord. Well, now, who was the power behind Caesar? Satan. Satan knows we will not worship him directly, so he is ever, ever trying to give us, get us to worship him indirectly through one of his puppets, one of his idols, something that he's the power behind. Paul talks about, we know these idols aren't anything, but there's demons behind them all. So those two things, the blood of the Lamb and the word of our confession, the word of our testimony that Jesus is Lord, and then that third and final ingredient and I know we're out of time. I'm sorry. I know I'm going late. Uh, we'll close it off here and try to pick up somewhere around here next week. But not valuing our earthly life, our physical life, more than valuing our eternal life. Not loving our life to the death. Remember, the price of confessing Christ in this world is death. Is death. The price of confessing Christ in this world is death. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing this even as we speak. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. We have such a luxury here in the U.S. I mean, I was thinking about all of the blessings that God has given our country, and I know it's a difficult time now, but if you take a bigger view, God has been so good to the United States, so good to America. And the chief blessing, I think, maybe among them all, is we have the luxury of reading the book of Revelation and thinking it's all about the future. But can you imagine right now, our brothers and sisters all around the world, China, Iran, Iraq, places like this, they're reading this book. They're not thinking about it as the future. This is their present reality. They're being told, either you come out here and confess that the state, the dictator, the, the prince, the, 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 you know, the imam, the, the, the prophet Muhammad, whoever, either you confess their Lord, they're in charge, or, or you're going to suffer, you're going to die. We, we in the West, we have such a luxury to treat Revelation as like it's something that's just going to happen someday somewhere in some place far away when it's been the common experience of millions of our brothers and sisters from the earliest days of our faith that the price of confessing Christ in this world is death. And even if we don't understand it as a physical death, it's still the death of our old nature. It's still the death of our sinful relationships and ways. But truthfully, for many today and for those in this particular time, it will be absolute, no escape, if you confess Christ, if you refuse to accept the beast as Lord, if you won't take his mark, you will die. Do I have any comments or questions? I'm sorry, again, another sermon. you got three sermons tonight for the price of a Bible study. That's a pretty good deal in some places. No, Pastor, I was just thinking as you mentioned death. I was, you, you, did just, you just said it anyway. I was going to say that the price is not just a physical death, but the death of our, our, our old nature, like you mentioned. And I was thinking about Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, 
that tells us there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So um, it is not just um, a physical death that we die from when we come to Christ. It is also the death of our old nature, the old, the old um, sinful nature that we, we carried with us before we came to Christ. I just wanted Amen. to just um, back up that part of what he says. And I was thinking about that before you, you mentioned it. Yeah, go ahead. I think it was, Paul and, it was Paul and Galatians there that said, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives me, right? I'm crucified with Christ. Yes. So now my prayer tonight, and we're going to close it here. We'll pick up uh, some parts of this next week. You've still got some notes there for your own edification. But um, just in closing tonight, I, I know we've kind of gone over some pretty deep ground. We're talking about this this great spiritual warfare, this, this incredible angel against angel, man against man, spirit against spirit battle that's just been raging all at the price of, all for the price of, of, of one creature's pride and, and, and just, uh, you know, we, we, we see it daily. We see it all around us. We experience it personally in, in our families and in our communities and, I just want to end. I want to end on a very encouraging note. I want to just go back to something here at the in this verse. There's a song here, and notice how each one of these visions kind of ends the same way with this this worship song or this this uh, this this worship uh, uh, expression. In verse ten, it says, "Now, now, salvation and strength." and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. So my encouragement to you tonight is hang in there. Hang in there. Satan may be giving you a hard time now, but his days are numbered. The time of our salvation, the time of the kingdom of God, it's oh so close to us, church. It's so close. You can, if, you just, if you stretch your eyes a little bit beyond the horizon, you can see it coming. So just hang in there. It seems dark. It seems difficult. We're all being tried. But remember that song. The kingdom of God and the power of his Christ are coming. Let me thank you all for being part of our Bible study tonight. God bless you all. And we will talk with you again next Wednesday evening. This has been a production of the Lighthouse Church of God. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. You are welcome to join us for service every Sunday at 1030 a.m. For more information or to support our ministry, visit our website at www.lhcogfl.org. Or if you're in the Broward County area, we would love for you to visit our church located at 1890 Southwest 31st Avenue, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33312. God bless you. Until next time, this is the Lighthouse Church of God, lighting the way through the storms of life.